Welcome. Church of the Advent is an Anglican congregation in Denver, Colorado, that seeks to share in the life of God by redefining and reorienting everything around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope you are challenged, encouraged, and move closer toward the gospel by this week's message. There's a, there's a scene in C.S. Lewis's Paralandria. Anyone read it? Many of you? Great book. Where the, the devil figure is having this ideological joust with the E figure. And the devil is tempting her with the forbidden fruit of Eden, basically. And in the conversation, the devil piques Eve's interest. And when he brings up the concept of death, this concept is totally foreign to Eve. She's naive and she curiously asks, not knowing what she's asking really, will you teach us death? And Shirley has, again, no idea what she's saying. And the devil figure then replies, yes, it is for that that I came, that you may have death in abundance. And eventually, as Eve begins to discern the devil's real motives, she repents. That is to say, she has this change of mind and a, ch- a change of heart. And she says to the devil, your words are meaningless. To walk out of God's will is to walk into nowhere. And this is the context within which I want to look at just two verses that were read this morning. Some of you were relieved I'm not preaching on the fishers of men part. I'm preaching on verse 14 and 15, where Jesus says, he summarizes really his entire ministry. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. That's the sermon. Last week, I couldn't, I, didn't, I couldn't figure out a big idea. That's the big idea this week, right from the lips of Jesus. Repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of God has come. So I want to reflect on the, on the kingdom under three headings, the kingdom of death, the kingdom of God, and the kingdom life. The kingdom of death, the kingdom of God, and the kingdom life. This really maps onto this little scene I've just, I've just explored with the devil and Eve. The kingdom of death brings death in abundance, which of course inverts the maxim of, of Christ in John 10.10, 10, I have come that you may have life and life in abundance. That's the kingdom of God, life in abundance. And then What is the kingdom life? Well, we see it in Eve's words of of repentance and of trust. Your words are meaningless. To walk out of God's will is to walk into nowhere. That's repentance. So first, the kingdom of death. I want to start here because the kingdom, it's a bit like someone someone handing you a parachute on an airplane. It's only good news if you recognize the plane is an engine failure. Otherwise, you're like, this is weird. Why'd you hand me that parachute? So the background of sin and of death is really lurking behind the scenes here of Jesus' words. In fact, we heard them in Jeremiah 3.24, which Emily read for us. Israel repents. They see that their sin, they say, has cost them their homes and their land and their freedom, just as Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 has said it would. Sin has consequences. and As we say in my house, sin spoils things. It always does. So what is sin? Let's define it a little bit further. Well, the most frequent word for sin in the Old Testament is kata, which basically means to miss the intended goal. So you're to imagine like an archer or an arrow flying to its target but missing and going wide. That's to kata. That's to miss. In other words, you have a target, you and I. Human beings were made for a purpose, a telos, a goal. A refrigerator was made to freeze things. A knife was made to cut things. What were you made for? Genesis 1 to 2 answers, we were made to flourish in partnership with God, in obedience to him, in partnership with him, enjoying him. And when we do, shalom happens. Shalom is defined by one scholar as the webbing together of God and humans and all creation and justice and fulfillment and delight. That's shalom. But instead, 
we kata. We go, we go against our design. We, we miss the mark, and we sin. And what happens? Well, shalom is vandalized. Sin is a shalom vandal, says Cornelius Platinga. So exile, and eventually death in abundance. So what is the essence of sin? We see it in the devil's premise here when he offers Eve the fruit. And the premise is this, God doesn't know best, I do. It's the creature saying to the creator, I know best. You know, one of the most popular songs to play at funerals is Frank Sinatra's I Did It My Way. It's, a, it's Aleister Crowley's Do What Thou Wilt. That is the whole of the law. It's Ariana Grande's I See It, I Want It, I Like It, I Got It. Don't judge me. I did youth group for a long time. <laughs> it's, it's God saying kneel and us looking him in the eye and saying no. So the common denominator, many Christians have said, of all this that we see, it's pride. It's pride. Here again, we look to Lewis. He says, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. So pride says, I will be God. I will chart my own path to the abundant life. And so a world leader says, abundant life, that means conquering new lands. If millions are displaced and die along the way, so be it. And a tech leader says, my idea of abundance is manipulating the masses with algorithms that entrench and addict and divide, and I'm going to laugh all the way to the bank. And a church leader says, abundant life means power, so get on the bus or get run over by the bus. A politician says, abundant life means election, so who cares how much wreckage I leave in my wake? A peer, maybe at school, says abundant life means popularity. It just so happens that I need to climb on your back to get there. A spouse says, yeah, I know for abundance to happen here in this relationship and for this cycle to break, someone needs to humble themselves and apologize and selflessly love, and then they say, you first. A sibling says abundant life means never sharing anything, ever. (laughs) Strictly hypothetical. Because I'll do it my way. And you and I, we have our own little pet projects, don't we? Our own little kingdoms we set up. Right along with Frank, I'll do it my way. This is what the Bible calls the flesh. That's the flesh. Not like physically, it's this force, this selfish, egotistical, prideful force. We manipulate, we control, we overindulge, we lie, we binge, we withdraw, we fantasize, we hoard, we withhold. Because I'm going to do it my way. And honestly... (laughs) Think about it. When you've done these things, when has that ever led you to flourishing? When? Sinful life is a depressing caricature of, of genuine human life, a life of flourishing. Now, I wanted to begin by framing sin this way, because many of our friends and neighbors, we hear the word sin, and what comes to mind? A list of super religious people and rules, and they suck the fun out of life, this, this outdated moral code for snobby people. No, 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 sin is to miss the mark of your created purpose, which is to flourish with God. Now, I think one of the best illustrations is what some consider to be the best TV show of all time, Breaking Bad, not for the faint of heart, but some of you have probably seen it. Walter White is this high school chemistry teacher, and he turns into this meth kingpin. Well, how does this happen? (laughs) He's diagnosed with with cancer, and he's afraid of leaving his family impoverished, and and so he, he sees this drug bust on television, and he has this idea, I could put my chemistry tools to, to use, making meth, and making a lot of money. And so in episode one, Walter is this normal dude, this chemistry teacher, and by the end of the show, he's a definitively evil man. How does this happen? 
Well, the show's creator, Vince Gilligan, he gives us the very clear answer. He gives us a simple word, pride. He clearly names and frames the role of pride in Walter's destructive descent. In fact, in one episode, a friend offers to help Walter financially and pay for his cancer treatment, and Walter refuses because he says, I refuse to go begging for charity. And so pride is this catalyst that leads to all these other sins. And then you start asking as you're watching the show, why is he, why is he still doing this? Why doesn't he stop? Moral inertia, writes one author in Theology of Breaking Bad. The idea is once we begin indulging in these like habitual sins, we literally create pathways in our brain and habits of the heart where it just becomes easier and easier and easier and it becomes almost instinctual just to sin every time. This is what's happening to Walter. And then finally, his descent deepens. He becomes increasingly desensitized to death. And it culminates in this, in this awful, sobering moment where he chooses not to, to save a life that he could have saved. And then this girl's father is an air traffic controller, and he's distraught with grief because of the loss of his daughter. And, and in his grief, he misdirects two planes, and the planes collide directly over Walter's house, and the wreckage becomes strewn all over his entire neighborhood. And it is this blunt visual for sin. Walter's sin unleashes havoc on himself and on his community. Sin is never private. It's destructive. It destroys. In fact, Vince Gilligan summarizes the lesson of the whole series this way. He says, if there's a larger lesson to Breaking Bad, it's this. Actions have consequences. That sounds a lot like Torah, doesn't it? Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy uh, 28, Jeremiah 3.24. Sin has consequences. It ruins things. So that's the simple premise here. God desires to give you abundant life. But to walk out of his will is to walk into nowhere. There are countless rival kings and little kingdoms offering you abundant life, politicians, philosophies, people, business, popularity, wealth, power, most powerfully for many of us, our egos, the almighty eye, always demanding to be enthroned and obeyed. But every other would-be king is not going to lead you to abundant life. It's going to overpromise. It's going to underdeliver. Now, in order to make sure I don't overpromise and underdeliver, I have to say this for a second point. Think about what Jesus says when he says the kingdom is coming. In verse 15, Jesus says the time has come, the kingdom of God, and some translations say here, I'm not sure what the NRSV and the Pew has actually, but some say is at hand, others say has come near. I prefer has come near. Uh, it's a more literal translation of the Greek. I prefer it because I think the language is a little intentionally vague here around timing, because the kingdom has come, the kingdom is coming, and the kingdom will come more fully. We live in this already, not yet, of the kingdom, and this tension can be really messy, can't it? Think about it this way. After Jesus proclaims the kingdom has come near, what does he do? Well, in the following scenes we're going to look at next week and beyond, Jesus destroys oppressive evil, he heals diseases, he cleanses lepers, the kingdom is coming. But he doesn't speak a word and cleanse the whole world of evil immediately. He doesn't cleanse every leper. He doesn't go and heal every disease beyond the boundaries of Israel-Palestine. The kingdom has come near. It's breaking in, but it's still arriving. It hasn't fully arrived. And the already means you and I, we can and we ought to hope for God's power to break into our lives, to heal us, to cleanse us, to free us, to grow us, to bless us abundantly. But the not yet means that suffering and hardship, it doesn't mean God's forgotten us. It means 2 Corinthians 4.17, our light and momentary affliction is achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. 
In other words, there's already not yet. We don't, God is unpredictable, isn't he? <laughs> That's hard. I wish he were predictable, but he isn't. Sometimes there's some beautiful breaking in of the kingdom, and other times the call is to endure, and we don't always know how or why or when. That's the tension we live in. In the end, we will have a fully realized kingdom. And that is the hopeful future. It's like gravity that's waiting for us in the future, pulling us in its direction closer and closer. That's the vision of John 10. You know, think about this. Jesus was speaking to people who knew all about kings. They'd lived under many kings, Persian kings, Greek kings, now Roman kings. Each king's promise was the same. Obey me, Caesar, enjoy the Pax Romana. That's the way it worked under kings. That's actually just a simple kind of perversion of the original king, the original Edenic piece. Obey the, the king and you will flourish. You will be blessed. Not just one corner of the world or the Roman Empire, the whole cosmos will be blessed and flourish under the true king. I love the way, again, Cornelius Plattinga imagines a world at Shalom. He says, a world at Shalom would look this way. The kingdom of God would look this way. Business associates would rejoice in each other's promotions. Intercontinental ballistic missile silos would be converted into training tanks for scuba divers. Blogs would be filled with well-written accounts of acts of great moral beauty. And at the end of the day, people on their front porches would read these accounts and call to each other about them and savor them along with their single martini. (laughs) See, we're not just trying to get our sins forgiven. We're trying to live in a kingdom, in God's kingdom. Life has rest and joy and purpose and intimacy and friendship and beauty. In God's kingdom, children are are safe and businesses are ethical and and corporations are concerned for human flourishing and environmental health. In his kingdom, artists, they're inspired to create masterpieces of works of poetry and architecture and, and, and music, echoing the masterful work of creation that they so eagerly enjoy. In his kingdom, people say, I was wrong. I'm so sorry. How can I make it right? And they really mean it. In his kingdom, there is life in abundance. There's, there's shalom. So if many kings want to teach us death in abundance, and Jesus the king wants to give us life in abundance, how then do we live? The third point is kingdom living is summarized by Jesus this way. Repent and believe. And these two words are really the same, kind of two sides of the same coin, but I want to focus on this old dusty church word, repent. And maybe you hear repentance as an angry religious word and it conjures up images of like a spitting red-faced preacher just sweating with anger. Or maybe you grew up in the Catholic Church. I know some of you did. And you hear it as kind of a moralistic word because you think of um, repentance as penance. comes from an early Latin translation of the word, mistranslation. Um, So penance being concrete moral, concrete acts like Hail Marys and so on. Neither of these is really what repentance is. We've already done the heavy lifting to see why. If sin is death and the kingdom of God is life, what is repentance? It's the elixir of life. It's, a, it's cool spring rain on a thirsty land. It's when a child's body is all twisted with anger until they apologize for the wrongdoing and suddenly they relax and smile. And there's relief. It's when there's a conflict. Maybe there's a marital conflict and it's filling the room with tension and then a genuine apology changes the atmosphere in an instant and you come together. Repentance is life. And this is really all I really want to say at the end of the day. An abundant life life abounds from a repentant life. An abundant life abounds from a repentant life. The Greek word metanoia, it it, it means simply a change of mind, but it blossoms into various contexts. Here's my 
one way of defining it, my attempt this week, repentance is a reorientation of the soul in response to a genuine encounter with Christ. Repentance is a reorientation of the soul in response to a genuine encounter with Christ. So it's a reorientation and it's a response. First, it's a reorientation. When I moved to Colorado, I drove from North Carolina for 20-some hours. I kind of needed to be oriented west. After one bleary-eyed stretch, I stopped for coffee somewhere in Kansas. I actually got on I-70 heading three miles east before I realized what I had done, so I pulled over, turned around. What did I do? I repented. That's what repentance is. It's going one way, realizing you're going the wrong way, stopping, and turning around and going the other way. That's it. Now, I find the concept of directional orientation really helpful here because we've already talked about the already, not yet. It means we still oftentimes do go east when we need to go west. Go west, young man. I've been waiting to say that for so long. (laughs) That's the idea is, yeah, we're going to make wrong turns. We're going to go over the long haul in your life. Are you oriented towards God or not? Repentance is a reorientation towards God. And so we repent every single week here in church. Sometimes I, I kneel and I'm like, here we are again. But the idea is repentance is a lifestyle. It re- we need to be reoriented again and again to our final destination, the kingdom of God. We're going to have a chance to do that in a minute. So it's a reorientation and it's a response. Now, if I were to ask you what comes first, saving grace or repentance, what would you say? Don't say it, just think about it. This has everything to do with how you understand the gospel. Because if repentance, something we must do, logically precedes saving grace, something God does, then we would be saying, you must do X, repentance, in order to get Y, God's salvation. Does that sound right? No. See, the problem is, well, I once heard Tim Keller say that if he didn't have 25 years to preach to New York, but he only had two minutes, here's what he'd say. Every other religion is advice. The gospel is good news. News is altogether different than advice. Advice says, do this, do that, pray, give this, you'll get God. That's basically every other religious system. The gospel is not advice. It's an announcement about what God has done in and through Christ. Advice is like bro culture on the internet. You know what I'm talking about? Optimize your body with cold plunges and home gyms and supplements. You know, new marketing techniques or whatever, like communications. Do it and you'll be saved. In this case, improved. Christianity is not advice. Now it goes on to involve in Christ. And if you don't believe that news, you certainly won't repent. Why would you? Hating and turning from sin comes from loving God. And that's why a response, a response to what? It's a response to a genuine encounter with Christ. Think of the prodigal son. He's got this well-rehearsed religious speech. It's religion. He says, I'm going to do this stuff so that I'll earn my keep back under his roof. I'm going to be a servant. But before he can get out his, his religious words, they're smothered by the father's embrace. The father's actions are a gospel announcement. The father runs to him before he's even said a single word. So the gospel is not repent hard enough and feel guilty enough and God may consider letting you live under his roof. No, 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 no. It's, it's a running embrace. It's God's action. It's his announcement. So if you're going to genuinely repent, then you've got to see Christ. Christ has run to love you. One scholar famously put it that the Gospels are just 
their shape, if you look at their shape, their passion narratives, which is Jesus' suffering and death on the cross, their passion narratives with long introductions. Accordingly, Christians have always measured sin in part by the suffering needed to atone for it. And so we see that the ripping and the, and the writhing of Christ's body on a cross, and that tells us that sin is desperately difficult to fix. But the difficult has been done. And at the center of the Christian Bible, the four Gospels, they describe the pains that God has taken to defeat sin and its consequences. You do not defeat sin. Jesus did. And you walk free of sin as you, as you ally yourself with him. So why would you? Name another king that's bled for you. Name one that took nails in his hands for you. Name one that endured a, a shameful death while he held the entirety of, of your precious life in his heart. You know, sin is death, we said. Well, look at the cross. Look no further. Sin is death. And there it is on full display. Your sin. My sin, the world's sin, his death for your life. So repenting is responding to a genuine encounter with Christ, the King who has loved you literally to death. And as he walked through death unto life, we walk that same path through repentance. Because an abundant life abounds from a repentant life. And that's why Jesus put it to just take a minute to move straight into confession and repentance as we always do every week, and then we're going to do prayers of the people afterwards. So I'm just going to leave a, a minute or so of silence. So for some of you, as you didn't really of you, the invitation is to think about, where am I lacking shalom? And that isn't necessarily because you didn't repent. Life is hard. The kingdom is not fully here. You may just be needing to endure for a time, and it's time. It's time to do it. So ask the Lord for conviction. Ask him if it's time. Others of you maybe haven't had a genuine encounter with Christ yet. And if that's you, there's no time like the present. Spend this minute asking the Lord, Lord, I do want to know you. Christ, I do want you to be my king. I do want a genuine encounter with you. So let's take a minute. Let me pray. We'll take a minute, and then I'll lead us right into confession together. Father, I pray that your, your grace would humble us, that we would, we would go begging for your charity. And we do beg for it, Lord. We know that as far as the east is from the west, you've removed our transgressions from us. That you're so gracious and ready to forgive. And I pray that that grace, that kindness, would lead us now into repentance. Would you, by your Holy Spirit, convict us each? Just one area, maybe one thing, where we just need to repent and, and stop going the way we're going to turn around and head towards you and your life-giving words. And I pray that if anyone hasn't encountered you, they would right now. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to take a moment to reflect on what God might be saying to you through what you just heard. For questions, additional information, and resources, please visit adventdenver.com.